0: Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather in this place today to worship you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for inspiring this word that we are about to break open. And as we open your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would teach us, and that you would correct us where necessary, and that you would equip us. To follow Jesus in a world that desperately needs to see the grace that you have extended to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Equip us for every good work that we might put Jesus on display in our world, and we ask these things in his name. Amen. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. How are you doing today? Um, Man, packed house today, so good to see you all. By the way, if this is your first time here, we're so glad you've chosen to worship with us. And one of the things that we want you to know about us is that if you attend here on a regular basis, what you'll find is that on Sunday morning, we will be teaching our way through whole books of the Bible. Most of the time, that's uh, our usual approach. Now, one reason we do this is because when God chose to reveal himself to us, he did so through the 66 books that we call our Bible. And so for us, it just makes sense that we would study the Bible the way God gave us the Bible, and that is book by book. And the second reason we study our way through whole books of the Bible is because we are constantly encouraging you to personally read God's Word on a daily basis. And right now, by the way, We're using a Bible reading plan. It's called CBR, Community Bible Reading Plan. And the plan helps you read through whole books of the Bible. And it's a great thing. It's really simple. You read a chapter a day. You write down your biggest takeaway from what you read that day. And then you have a group of friends or family that are reading through the CBR plan with you. And you text back and forth your insights about that particular passage. It's very encouraging. It's very good Very good, I encourage you to do it. If you're interested, you can stop out in the commons and you'll find a reading schedule like this, and uh, you can pick one of those up. The second, anyway, the second reason that we teach through books of the Bible is because we encourage you to read the Bible the the way that God gave us the Bible, and so we teach the Bible the way we encourage you to read the Bible, and that is book by book. And uh, as it happens right now, we are in a study of the book of James, and this is week three. And if you missed the first two messages, I encourage you to go back and watch them or listen to them. You can find them on our website, on our app, or on YouTube. And what we've seen so far uh, is that James is concerned with this question, this question. How do you put your faith into action when trials and troubles come into your life? How do you put your faith into action when trials and troubles come into your life. And he tells us how to handle trials and troubles and pain and suffering and unfair treatment, oppression, injustice, put downs, setbacks. And he tells us how to go through things like that, not just coming out the other side with our faith intact, but with our faith even stronger. And by way of introduction to this topic, he lays all this out in the first 12 verses of chapter 1. Verse 12 being the summarizing statement of the passage. And then when you get to verse 13, the subject changes from trials to temptation. From trials to temptation. And trials and temptation are connected, but they're not the same. Because as we'll see next week, God uh, tests us, but he never tempts us. God tests us, but he never tempts us. And the test comes from God, But the temptation comes from inside. We'll look at that next week. Now, this is so important. These foundational messages are so important. I want to review with you the four things that we have seen so far in our study of James. Uh, Number one is, the life of faith is a life of difficulty. In other words, troubles and trials are inevitable. Verse 2, James says, consider it pure joy when you go through trials. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial because when he has stood the test. So it's not if, it's not if, but it's when. James teaches, the Bible teaches that the life of faith is a life of difficulty. And here's the the point of this. Anything that can happen to anybody can happen to a Christian. Anything that can happen to anybody can happen to a Christian. Do you know that? Do you know that? Never, never think that because you're a Christian, because you're following Jesus, never think that means that you're immune to trials and troubles of life in this fallen world. Never think that there's a limit to how bad things can get. Never think that God has some kind of obligation to keep you from really bad suffering. Way too, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? yeah. I mean, way too many Christians have this idea, yeah, I know bad things can happen, but really, God won't let anything really bad happen to me. And I wish that was true, but it's just not true. And if you think that way, when something bad does happen to you, it'll rock your spiritual world. And so, and if you need proof that uh, there's no limit of how bad things can get, you just need to look at Jesus, because Jesus suffered all kinds of intense trials going to the To the cross. He suffered uh, relationally. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was alone. He was falsely accused, uh, arrested, and accused. He suffered injustice from the hands of the governing authorities. And he suffered physically. He was beaten. He was scourged. uh, And he was crucified. There's nothing that we will ever suffer that Jesus didn't suffer way much more than us. And he proves that there are no limits to what a child of God. Can suffer. The fact is, Jesus suffered, not that we might not suffer, but so that in our suffering, we might become like him. Let me say that again. Jesus suffered, not that we might not suffer, but so that in our suffering, we might become like him. That's the first thing. Life of faith is a life of difficulty. Trials and troubles are inevitable in this life and this fallen world. Number two, only of faith, James tells us that only of faith, that expresses itself in visible, tangible actions, will get you through those trials. And he bottom lines it in chapter two, verse 17, when he says that faith without works is dead. In other words, for all practical purposes, this side of eternity, a faith that is not applied, is useless. When trials and troubles come into our lives, a faith that's not not put into action does you no good. It's worthless. That's number two. Number three is God uses trials to develop steadfast faith in us. God uses trials as test of faith to develop steadfast faith in us, a standfast kind of faith. Now, James says that trials are tests of faith, and the test here doesn't mean like a, a test you have in school that's pass fail. Test doesn't mean a test to see if you have real, genuine, going to heaven when you die kind of faith. Now James isn't talking about the kind of faith, the entering into a relationship with God kind of faith, the kind of faith that he's, uh, the kind of test that he's talking about that test our faith is is the test that refines our faith, that refines our faith. Just like fire refines gold by removing the impurities so that gold is pure, pure gold, fiery trials, as Peter calls them, refine our faith so that our faith becomes steadfast, Stand fast, stand firm no matter what kind of faith. And fiery trials work to remove the impurities of doubt and self-sufficiency so that our faith carries us through the trial stronger in faith. So God uses trials to develop standfast faith in us. And then finally, James says, if we ask him, God will give us the wisdom we need to make it through the trial stronger in our faith. If we ask him, God will give us the wisdom that we need to make it through the trial stronger in faith. Now in a very real sense, what makes trouble trouble is that our wisdom runs out, right? What makes trouble trouble is that we don't know how to navigate the terrible thing that's come into our life and we struggle to see what's happening the way God sees it. So when we encounter various kinds of trials and we're confused by what's going on, when we're wrestling with what's going on, when we find it difficult to see how God could, could possibly use the terrible trial to refine and strengthen our faith. And James says, if you don't understand that and you don't see it, ask God for wisdom to see what's going on the way he sees it from his perspective. And he says, ask in faith. Don't doubt that God will answer this prayer. Ask in faith and God will give you the wisdom you need. And that's God's promise to us. And that means we shouldn't just pray Uh, for God to save us from the trial, but also to pray, if he chooses not to remove the trial, also to pray that God would save us through the trial. We're to ask God to show us how to put our faith into action in the trial, because again, that's the way our faith is strengthened and refined. That's how we become wise, and that's how we can experience peace and calm And even joy when various trials come into our life. So that's what we've been talking about. That's what James has been telling us so far in verses one through eight. So let's move on to the next part of the passage which is verses nine through 11. Verse nine, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass; his flower falls, and his beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, if you're like me, when you first read these verses, I mean, I'm like, how do these verses connect with what James has said so far? Right? Like, how do they connect? I mean, it almost feels like that James has changed the subject. And if, as we said, that James is to the New Testament what Proverbs is to the Old Testament, and that's wisdom literature. Well, we know there are lots of places, lots of chapters in Proverbs where there's one, more than one subject that pops up in the same chapter. So I'm like, is that what's going on here? Is James just throwing out little bits of wisdom here and there? And the answer to that is no. And to understand these verses, you've got to understand two things. One is the context, and the other is the cultural background. Let's look at the context first. Verse two, context. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Then down in verse 12 he says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. So think with me, if verses 1 through 8 are about trials, and verse 12 is about trials, then that means that even though it's hard for us to make the connection, verses 9 through 11 are also about trials. Because verse 2 and verse 12 are like bookends, and verse 2 is about trials, verse 12 is about trials, everything in between is about trials as well. But still, it's it's hard to see the connection. So here's the connection. James is giving us two different examples of how people in two different life situations experience trials in different ways. They experience various trials in different ways. That might make a good book. Different people, different trials. Um, I wrote a book called Different Children, Different Needs. So anyway, only about three of you got that. But anyway... Um, But And that's not all, by the way. He's also telling us how to handle these trials with wisdom. So again, he gives us two brief case studies. He says, consider it pure joy, my friends, when you encounter different kinds of trials. And then he gives us an example of two different kinds of people who respond to trials in different ways. And specifically, the trial has to do with money. Now, I know that that was something very unique to the first century, and we don't struggle with money problems today, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, money, finances, spending, saving, losing your savings, uh, salaries, salary salary cuts, stock market downturns, to insure or not to insure. I mean, in a very real uh, sense, financial trials, financial problems are in the top three kinds of trials that can rock our spiritual lives right up there with health problems and relationship problems, financial problems. That's what he's talking about. So James gives us some much needed wisdom here. He gives us God's perspective on our money trials. And this is what he says. This is number one for today. Could be number five if we were adding all these up. Whether you have a little or a lot, what you need most is God's perspective on your money trials. Whether you have a little or a lot, What you need most is wisdom, and you need the wisdom to see your situation like God sees your situation. So in a very real sense, verses 9 through 11 are about perspective, money problems, and God's perspective on your money problems. Because you see, if you fall into poverty, that's a trial, that's a test of faith. If you fall into prosperity, that's a trial, and that's a test of faith, which goes against everything that those prosperity preachers are preaching out there. Every adversity and every prosperity, every financial loss and every financial success is a test that can either make you much wiser and stronger in your faith if you handle it properly, or it can make you more foolish and weak if you don't handle it properly. Every change in your situation, whether it's a good change or a bad change, uh, change, every difficulty, every success is something that will push you to become a much stronger Christian or a much much weaker Christian than you were before. But here's the deal. The way trials work is when you go through them, you're never the same after you go through them. If you lose love or gain love, there are opportunities for growth, but there's horrible spiritual uh, dangers built into both sides of that. If you make a lot of money or you lose a lot of money, both things are tests. And when they come into your life, it'll either make you a stronger Follower of Jesus, or it'll make you a weaker, stronger, of, uh, fo- uh, weaker follower of Jesus, but you don't stay the same. You either become a far more genuine, grounded, stand fast Christ follower than you were before, or you'll become a far more, well, it can even be miserable, angry, bitter believer than you were before, but you don't stay the same. That's the way trials work. So, what we need most is God's perspective on our money. We need wisdom to see as God sees so we can do as God says. Okay, so there's two different kinds of people, two different positions in life. Look at it, verse nine. <clears throat> Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, lowly refers to someone who's living in poverty. They have lack. The person who, uh, for whom everything uh, has fallen apart financially. More month than money, living paycheck to paycheck, or maybe having no money at all, no savings to speak of. The person who's lost their job, the person whose career has fallen apart, the person who's on the bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder, the person who, in the world's eyes, is small and insignificant, and all of those life situations come with built-in trials and troubles and tests of faith. And if that's you, James tells you how uh, to see what you're going through from God's perspective. And God's perspective is what? Well, uh, many people have rightly observed that James is drawing heavily on his older brother, his older half-brother, uh, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and there are as many as 13 inferences from what James says in, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and what James writes in this letter. Now, think. What was Jesus' perspective on the poor people in the crowd the day he preached that incredible paradigm-shifting sermon? What did he say to a crowd full of small and insignificant, low position poor people? He said, Blessed, happy, joy-filled are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account and then he concludes in verse 12 of Matthew 5 rejoice and be glad that sounds like that sounds like uh, verse 2 doesn't it consider it all joy uh, for your reward is great in heaven that sounds like James uh, 1:12 You'll, you'll get the crown of life if you are steadfast through the trials. And so, so you see, in these nine sayings, all spoken with the poor and outcast in mind, Jesus says, this is how your heavenly Father sees you. You may be small and insignificant in the eyes of the world and, the, and in the eyes of the wealthy religious establishment, but that is not how God sees you. God sees you having an exalted status. Now you see how that ties in with what James says here in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. You see that? Exaltation means high position. He's telling people in low position to rejoice in their high position, which would be the exact opposite of how folks in low position would see themselves. I mean, they'd be, they'd be like, like, well, like, what do you mean brag about my high position? I live an insignificant life. I live a pressed down life. I live a life of difficulty. What are you talking about? Rejoice and brag about my elevated status. And James says, God has exalted you to being rich in your relationship with Christ. You should be bragging about or you should be affirming as true all you have in Christ. You should brag about the fact that God has given you a high position in his kingdom that's the very opposite of how the world sees you. And he's saying, don't belittle yourself. Rather, boast in the good news that God doesn't see you the way the world does. He sees you as one who will reign in the kingdom of God. He sees you as one who will inherit the earth. He sees you as one who will experience the mercy of God. James says, God exalts those in low status, those who are humble, boast in your exaltation. But, but how, how do you brag about that? I mean, that, that's a spiritual thing. The trials are just hands-on, visible, tangible things. How do you brag about it? Well, you do it through prayer and praise and thanksgiving, affirming that what God says about you is true. Last week, we talked about praying prayers of affirmation about what we know to be true about God. Here we pray prayers of affirmation about what's true about you, what God says is true about you. Like, God, I thank you that I am a child of God and one day I'll live in, your, in the kingdom of God. God, I thank you that my name is written down in your book of life. Heavenly Father, my deepest joy and satisfaction are in the fact that you put your very own spirit inside of me and you promise to never leave me or forsake you. Take me, and, and God, I mean, look at what's going on in my life. I, I, want, I, want, I want you to know that I'm holding on to your promise that you are with me and that you are for me. And Father, you say that I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I want to know the reality of that in the, re, in the midst of the reality I'm going through. And you tell me that right now I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. I mean, how much more exalted could you be? That's perspective, seeing yourself as God sees you. And by the way, this is something you learn. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 11, he says, I've learned to be content in whatever I have. I've learned how to live with a little or a lot. I've learned the secret of living in every situation. He's writing this from prison, by the way. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's a, with a full stomach or an empty stomach, having plenty or having... A little that's the Charlie Boyd translation right there everything that James is telling us here is learned behavior and the key is learning to look at all of life from God's perspective learning to see as God sees in this trial that you're uh, that you're going through right now learning to trust him when things seem hopeless and and and, and then that trial, you get past that, and then you know what? There's another test. There's another trial. And there's another trial. And there's another trial. And he, he, he allows those trials to come into our lives to, to uh, exercise that faith muscle to the point of exhaustion. In a very real sense, you and I are members of God's gym. Not gold's gym, God's gym. Actually, I prefer to call it CrossFit. Yeah, I know, groans, groans everywhere, yeah, moaning, groaning, oh, that's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, The Holy Spirit is our personal trainer, teaching us God's perspective in all things, and he does it over and over and over and over again, and let's not kid ourselves, learning to see all of life the way God sees it isn't easy, is it? It's like a roller coaster, it's up and down and up and down and up and down, and I learn it and I forget it. And I learn it, but then, bam, right in the middle of it, nope, I didn't learn it. I gotta learn it all over again. It's not easy. But this is the Christian life. And, by the way, why is it that I'm more joyful in the Lord when my pockets are full of money than when they're not? Know know what I mean? Like James would say it's because my joy is attached to temporal things rather than eternal things. Now, I hear you. You're thinking, you mean to tell me that because I have to work every week and live paycheck to paycheck, just trying to make ends meet, you're telling me that's the best place for me to be? Well, maybe. Could be. Maybe spiritually speaking it is. And by the way, I'm not, necess- I'm not saying that. I hope you see that God is saying it right here in this passage because from God's perspective, it's better to live in total dependence on God than to think that your security rests in what you have. It's better, from God's perspective, it's better to live totally dependent on God than to think that your security rests in the things you have. Now, of course, the world wouldn't say that. But you can learn to value your spiritual condition above your financial condition. And if you're able to learn that, then you'll have it right. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Then he says and let the rich boast in his humiliation. Okay, all right, wait, let's get, get our minds around what's going on. Those who, in the world's eyes, are in a low position are to boast in their high position before the Lord, and the rich are to boast in their humble position before the Lord, in their humiliation. What in the world does that mean, to boast in your humiliation? Well, now, first of all, I take it that here James is talking about this Hypothetical rich man as a brother in Christ. So here he's concerned with the money trials that come to a Christ follower who is prosperous and successful. Interestingly enough, I last week I ordered a a book by an old Puritan writer who lived back in the 1600s. The book is entitled "Keeping the Heart," and it was written by a man named John Flavel. Now. it's a great book, but you've got to remember it's written in the 1600s and they have not updated it or edited it, so it's, in some parts it's difficult to read, but it is really good. Flavel has a list of 12 situations that are spiritually dangerous. Trials that test our faith, and he says that when these situations arise, we have to be especially diligent to keep our hearts steadfast in faith. And he talks about things like, sickness and want and adversity and persecution and facing danger and facing death he lists them all out and you know what the number one trial is he starts right off the bat the number one trial is prosperity in other words the bible teaches james teaches flavel teaches that the greatest trouble is to have no trouble the greatest trial is to have no trials the greatest danger is to have no difficulty. Like, like if, if you're successful and prosperous, here's the problem. Sometimes if you have enough money, you can just buy your way out of some of the messes that you find yourself in. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong, but if you're not careful, that can make you proud or at least self-sufficient, which can short-circuit your spiritual life. Flavil quotes St. Bernard as saying, to see a man humble under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. A man humble in his prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. Why is it so rare? Because oftentimes it's harder for prosperous and successful people to learn to be dependent on God. It's harder for them. Some of them, not all of them, but it's harder for some of them to be humble and dependent on on God. And James is gonna say over in chapter four, verse six, that God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. So humble, well-to-do people who see things the way they really are, they will keep their heart in check. Now, by the way, most of us here this morning, compared to the rest of the world, we would be considered towards the the rich side of the continuum than than the poverty side of the continuum. Like there's poverty stricken and there's prosperous. Prosperous, successful. You know, and, and we would be more towards the prosperous, successful. We're verse 10 people, not necessarily verse 9 people, if you're following me. Uh, and for those of us who are more towards the prosperous side of the continuum rather than the poverty-stricken side, and most of us are probably in the middle somewhere, but even so, we have an entirely different set of trials to overcome in order to learn to be God-dependent than the people on the poverty-stricken side. Now David wrote in Psalm 62 10, if riches come your way, do not set your heart upon them. He doesn't say give all your riches away. He says don't set your heart on them. Paul wrote in his first letter to young pastor Timothy, chapter 6, verse 17, he said, command those who are rich in this life not to be proud, not to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but to trust in the living God who will give them all things to enjoy, richly enjoy. They They are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous, and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is really life, really life. So when money trials come into the life of a person who has a lot in the world's eyes, God is working to remove every thought that that money gives you any kind of security or status or significance because in God's eyes, it doesn't. He's working to refine your faith so that you take hold of what is really life. He's working to make you humble. He's refining your faith so that you do not trust in the uncertainty of riches and that you don't hitch your heart to the things that you have. Now, if you have a lot, I'm gonna say this again, God means for you to enjoy it. 1 Timothy 6 says, uh, tells us that. Enjoy it. God's given you all things to enjoy. So God is not telling you to get rid of your wealth. No, he says enjoy it, but don't let what you have make you feel like you are superior to other people, better than other people. Don't trust in what you have, thinking that it will provide you with future security. He says enjoy it. Be generous with it. Share it and use what God has given you to advance the gospel in the world. This is exactly what, Je- what Jesus said in Luke 12, 15 when he says, your life doesn't consist in the things that you have. That's hard for us to get our minds around, isn't it? Your life doesn't consist in the things you possess. Now here's why. Look back at James 1:10 one more time. Let the rich boast in its humiliation because like a flower of grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and it withers the grass. The flower fails, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James has given us an illustration here. He says, you, you know the flower in the field, how it grows up and it's so beautiful and you know how an, an unexpected desert wind can blow in here and that flower will dry up, wilt, and fade away, it's dead. The flower is here today, gone tomorrow. And the thing is, thing is, you never know when that desert wind is gonna come. But when it comes, the beauty of it is gonna fade away. And the comparison that James is making here is that people who put their trust in the beauty of riches need God's perspective. They need to know that no temporal thing, no material thing lasts it's here today, gone tomorrow. So according to scripture, what's dangerous about prosperity is first, and a little review, when things are going well, you seldom feel dependent on God. And if we're not careful, because we're fairly prosperous, we can kind of drift into this false security based on our feelings of self-sufficiency. But even more, in times of prosperity, when things are going well, you can hitch your heart to things that fade, and when they fade, you fade with it. In my first pastorate after seminary down in Navasota, Texas, I remember one of the first visits I made was to a man, older man, he's probably about 70, and, um, and this guy, he had houses everywhere, he had land all spread out, he had all kinds of possessions, he had all kinds of toys and he claimed that he was a Christian, but he, um, he never really did uh, live the way a Christ follower would live. And I remember he, he had cancer, and I went to visit him, and he said, I just can't believe this. Like, all my life, I've, I've, I've accumulated all of these things, and now I'm dying. And I won't be able to enjoy any of it. And I was deeply grieved I mean, his possessions were outlasting him. He thought that, that, that he, he had never expected that he would be the one that would fade away. And then all he does is pass his possessions to the next generation. And when I got in the car to leave, I, I still remember this like it was yesterday. I remember thinking of Jesus' parable about the man who built bigger and bigger barns. And the death angel came by and said, uh, nope, not gonna enjoy that, and took it away. So, Our possessions fade, but we fade. We fade. That's what verses 10 and 11 are saying, that all temporal things, all material possessions, everything that falls into the category of earthly success and prosperity will fade away so it's foolish to set your heart on what you can't keep. But the fact is, the more money you have, the more things you have, the better your life is going, the better your career is going the more temptation there is to set your heart on things that are going to pass away. And the fact is you might pass away before they pass away. But don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that money's a bad thing. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. In other words, hitching your heart to money is the root of all evil. So don't walk away here from here this morning saying the preacher said if you have a lot of money, that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that. I, we, all of us, have a lot compared to the rest of the world. And God's not saying, get rid of what you have. James is not saying it's better to be poor than rich. He's just saying, no matter what side, uh, end of the spectrum that you're on, you're going to have your own set of unique trials. And if you build your, if you're on the uh, prosperous side, if you build your life around, well, what you don't have or what you do have. It's true of both sides. You need to remember that everything in this life is temporary. And one day it'll all pass away. And he's saying that you need to remember that and then live as if it's true. He's saying that the, world, the way the world sees you as having low status if you're poor or high status if you're rich, that is absolutely not the way God sees you. And so what you need is wisdom. You need God's perspective. And the way he sees you, whether rich or poor, he sees us all as standing before him at equal at the foot of the cross. He sees, God sees all of us, whether we have a little or a lot, as being equal before him at the foot of the cross. Oh, but you know what? I never did answer the question I asked earlier, like what in the world does it mean that prosperous people should boast in their humiliation? So let's go back to that. Again, people in low position are to boast in their high position. We talked about that people in high position or to boast in their low position, in their humiliation, what's that about? Never did answer that question. So, okay, remember back at the beginning of the message, I said to understand this passage, you've got to know something about the context and you have to understand something about the cultural background. So, so let me just tell you a little bit about the cultural background. Back in James' day, there were distinct classes of people. There were poor and rich and slaves and free and women and men and ignorant, and educated, distinct classes, and these classes never mixed. There were distinct lines that you never crossed in social interaction. That's the way it was in the culture. That was not the way it was in the church. The early church was different from every other social institution of the day because there were no class distinctions in the church. Men, women, rich, poor, slaves, free, educated, uneducated, they all came together As one people, one body, the body of Christ, no one was higher or lower than anyone else. Everyone stood on equal ground before God at the foot of the cross. So back in the day, if you were poor, it was hard to not let your low position on the world's socioeconomic ladder define you. And the same was true if you were rich, if you had a lot. It was very hard to not let the high position that you occupied in the eyes of the world define you. Like, not only if you were wealthy did you have to resist the pull of hitching your heart to material possessions that would pass away, but you also had to see yourself as God sees you, and that is to see yourself equal in status as the lowliest of the lowest brother or sister in the church, because the way God set things up In his kingdom, all the followers of Jesus stand what? Equal before God at the foot of the cross. So when James says, let the rich boast in their humiliation, he's saying, embrace the fact that no matter how much money, no matter how many material possessions you might have, in God's eyes, you are no better or worse than anyone else in Jesus' church. You need to let that humble you, and you need to brag about it and put your confidence in that. So James says, in the gospel, the low are brought high and the high are brought low so that everyone stands equal before God at the cross. Let me put it this way and then we'll be done. In God's economy, your identity must never be anchored to how much money you have. In God's economy, your identity must never be anchored to how much money you have. Yes, this passage is about perspective, and seeing your life and your trials that you encounter uh, the way God sees them, but perspective is also, in this passage, tied very directly to identity. How you see yourself, how you define yourself, how you're not to let the world define you based on what you have or don't have, and how you are to see yourself as God sees you so you can live as God uh, says. That is godly wisdom. That's God's perspective when it comes to your core identity. Whether you have a little or a lot, God sees all his children the same. At the foot of the cross, there's no higher, there's no lower. In his kingdom, there's no significant and insignificant. There's no superior and there's no inferior. That means your identity must never be anchored to what you have or don't have. And again, this is something you have to learn because money trials our tests of our faith. Test to see what you're really trusting in. Test to see, uh, a test that will reveal where your heart is anchored. Test to reveal what your identity is in, you see. So, so, so not having very much can define you just like having a lot can define you. And when the trial comes, listen, when the trial comes, it's easy to fashion an identity based on what you have and you don't have. So, Jesus, so James is saying, if you have a little, if you feel small and insignificant in the world's eyes, know this, Jesus has given you an exalted status. In the kingdom of heaven, you are important. In the kingdom of heaven, you have riches that are far beyond anything this life can offer. And he, he sa- so he says, don't root your identity in what you don't have, Root your identity in what God says about you and what God has given you in Christ, the riches he's given you in Christ. He also says, if you have a lot, if you feel significant and important because you're prosperous, he says, know this. Your true identity lies not in how much you have, not in your significance in the world's eyes, but your identity is found solely in your relationship with Jesus. So remember... So remember, in God's economy, everyone stands equal at the foot of the cross. And we're to boast about that. We're to rejoice in that. We're to find our deepest confidence and deepest satisfaction in that truth. Now, the truth is, most of us are somewhere in the middle, right, between poverty stricken and prosperity successful, we're somewhere in the middle. Now, you know what that means, don't you? If we're in the middle between these two extremes, that means we will find our, t- our faith being tested by both ends of the spectrum. We'll be tested by what we don't have, and we'll be tested on what we do have. So, <laughs> that's just the way it is. And here, here in fact... Our money problems can create in us um, an identity crisis, an identity crisis, an identity crisis that comes when we let what we have or don't have define us, an identity crisis that comes when we hitch our heart to things that don't last, an identity crisis that comes when we forget Jesus. Really? Really? Yeah, think about this. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make us rich. Isn't that good? He was exalted. He took on a low position. He became poor so that he could exalt us. And raise us up to where he is. Seated with him in the heavenly places. This is wisdom folks. This is what James says that wisdom with your finances looks like. Father God thank you for the wisdom that you have given to James. That you gave to James and that James has passed on to us. 2,000 years ago. And this is still as relevant and as applicable and as fresh today. And God, it's really hard. It's really, really hard when we have that financial situation come into our lives and we're thinking, where's the money gonna come from that? I mean, that's, that's, like, that's like real. It's right here. It's right now. We've gotta make decisions. We've gotta, we need wisdom. Like, what are we gonna do? And help us when we find ourselves in times like that, in trials like that, in test of faith like that, help us to put all of our trust in that which lasts. Holy Spirit, guard our hearts so that we don't hitch our hearts to things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Help us somehow in the midst of, Of what we go through and the difficulties we go through help us to have wisdom, to know how to navigate the trials that come into our life in such a way that we're stronger in faith and that we actually, as your people, put Jesus on display before a world that is dying and living in darkness. And we ask these things in his name, amen.